Morgan Neville said we need to have a documentary ethics panel about his film later. And today seems like later. He had that uh, blowout interview with uh, uh, Helen Rosner in uh, The New Yorker and uh, several other places. He was a very forthcoming with the um, uh, uh, kind of ethical quandary and uh, uh, sort of challenging us to uh, look at that and and kind of have our, our own panel on whether or not that was the right thing to do. Uh, but my initial reaction, because uh, because it meant so much to my recovery and it, it still does, uh, that's still a film that's helping me uh, deeply in a in a personal and emotive way is that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it sucks a little bit if a movie that you love, everyone's like, a, let's uh, throw the movie out with the bathwater here and um, none of it has value because of three lines. And I'm like, wait, that's 15 seconds of a movie that made me cry for an entire day like uh mm -hmm. does that outweigh my entire day's reaction um and the more i think about this and the more i think about rosner's interview and uh, and some of her thoughts uh just i think she put it pretty eloquently that the inherent squickiness of replication tech plus people's intensely personal ties to bourdain's work uh seemed to cloud the fact that it's basically someone reading uh dearest Annabelle, today we march toward gettysburg um, so it's it's essentially the same thing you see in a Ken Burns doc, but uh, the the issue might be uh, twofold that it is AI voice and secondary that it doesn't tell us what that is. Uh. Yeah. So this is uh, the the very interesting question and the Gettysburg thing, the the Ken Burns angle. I think uh, great. Uh, analogy here for comparison yeah. and the exact one I use when discussing this with, with my fiance and the, the ethical question of this just for those listening who might not understand exactly the the, the problem here uh, so Morgan Neville's most recent documentary Roadrunner uh, uh, film about Anthony Bourdain uh, has several lines in it of uh, Bourdain's words uh, through through various documents or intercourses that he had that are uh, voiceover that uh, are presented as his own voice, but are actually uh, replicated through through AI technologies. Uh, and it's only about three lines in the film, um, purportedly. But uh, that, that still brings up a huge question here as to how, you know, ethical that is, how much we can impose, you know, and uh, the identity of somebody onto words and projecting it as them, uh, you know, when really they, they have no part in presenting that aspect of themselves or version. But in terms of, uh, again, in, in a documentary, this is not uh, an unusual practice, no. typically. Uh, it's it's very regular to use an actor or a stand-in or another voice to represent that of the figure in your, your subject here, particularly in historical documentaries, like in the case of Ken Burns and such, where we do, where our, our primary documentation of their thoughts and feelings are well-kept, but we don't have, you know, a, an audio representation of them many times, so we have a stand-in for that. And actor who provides their voice. I, I think one of the key differences here, obviously, in the case of uh, those kind of historical, you know, figures and such, uh, be because, you know, utilizing their words, bringing them to life through somebody else's voice is uh, important, I think, in giving yeah. us a better appreciation and context for them. But the, the knowledge and knowing that it is an actor, having that, that pretense up front as we go in, is crucial in, in differentiating the personality and, and the inflection that you're giving. Like as an audience, when you hear Abraham Lincoln's words, you know, being read to you, uh, you know, that's not his voice, like just by nature and so, by, by the replication of it. It's got me thinking a lot about the Roger Ebert doc life itself, which I believe most people at, at least around release must have thought that Roger Ebert provided his own um, narration to it because it is a, such a clear impersonator and i've read those takes that people really think it was him but um i i think there it's credited at least in the credits uh, you you get to know that it was an impersonator maybe there's footage at the end i i love that doc and i can't remember uh so it's not a problem i've had with the ken burns or that one especially or, or um i shouldn't say it's devalued this movie either for me it's more that i have an ethical problem this movie is fantastic but then i'm like a 
but maybe there's uh, something there that we have to discuss as well. There's well, a... yeah, like like with like with anything, like yeah. uh, I don't know. Primary example, top of my head, uh, Apocalypse Now has actual <laughs> animal abuse in it. Right. Does that make it any less of a masterpiece? No, no. But uh, that's a huge issue still within the film that that you can certainly uh, uh, lobby and, and recognize there without it inherently infringing on the art of the piece itself. Uh, it's still an, an important conversation and discussion to be had particularly in this case as this is a more prevalent modern technological right. issue that's only like like the, the the blurriness of the the issue at hand here is only going to grow more and more as the technology becomes more indistinguishable and so yeah it's it's definitely worth talking about and recognizing while still also appreciating the inherent value and artistry of the yeah. film and i know some of our friends said it's incredibly obvious when the ai comes up but at the same time, I'm thinking we've only caught one instance in the film. So I, I think there are at least several more that people just don't know about. And they think it's so obvious because it's been pointed out. And I think if you listen in, you could hear that. That I mean, I remember watching it and thinking, wow, wow, he must have narrated this uh, email in one of his shows. Yeah, somewhere. that's that's the thing is that because it was an email. And, that, and I think that's what brought the oh, question man. to uh, Neville to begin with here is that the, the interviewer was just like confused and uncertain of, as to how he would have gotten Anthony Bourdain to have when he would have narrated this very personal email like this this exchange with somebody that you know otherwise wouldn't be like what what was the context for that like how why, why would he have done that and that's kind of the the giveaway I, I suppose of it and that yeah this is and, and I think another facet of the ethical question this is something ostensibly that Bourdain wouldn't want have have remembered, you know, or, or shared or shown to to other people. And that doesn't mean that it's then invaluable or should be taken out of a, of a documentary, you know, yeah. talking about his life. Obviously, we, we rifle through all sorts of personal information and, and documents, you know, to get a greater sense of somebody after they're gone. Usually, you know, a greater distance from their death. But right. uh, this that, is that's, pretty soon, too. It, and that's another debatable question of this, like, but also, again, how long is, you know, long enough? How soon is too soon? Well, it's not, it's a, it, it's a rather arbitrary when we decide that. Yeah, it's easy enough to, to talk about and, and rifle through George Washington's personal papers. But, you know, why, why is uh, 300 years uh, all right, but <laughs> versus five? Right. I mean, and, and he spent so much time in a personal relationship with the viewer, I, I believe, like in his show, it, it it always felt one-to-one -one like we were in Tony's shoes and we walked through the streets with him. So I think we have a very distinct relationship with Bourdain that we don't have with many American voices right now. Um, and we want to defend him. I mean, uh, I, I am a little bit nervous when I heard that. Uh, I, I At first I thought it was okay because he said he got it signed off, but then uh, his ex-wife said, no, he didn't get it signed off with me, uh, which is what he claimed. And uh, so that leaves his literary agent as the only person he signed it off with. Um, well, well, there's is, also the question there of like, it, does, does the wife or the literary agent or really anybody have the moral authority to sign away someone's yeah. personal information? Again, it's a, it's another muddy question. Yeah. Like, like legally we ascribe these uh, authorities to those people, but is that, you know, is that something we should do? Is that right? Does that, yeah. you know, uh, like, you know, absolve anyone of any blame? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. The thing Morgan Neville said is that he was watching an old clip of the uh, of his old movie, and he was thinking about Sunset Boulevard as uh, Bourdain was laying face down in the pool, and he was thinking, would this maybe be a trick that Tony would be up for? So he thought, uh, what if, like, Holden, he could speak from the grave? And he thought that was a really interesting thing to play with, which he said in one interview, and it is. It's just not an ethical thing. I mean, uh, it is interesting, but... Um, it's more interesting than Space Jam, which came out this week <laughs> and had uh, lots of likenesses of dead people, by the way, in it and lots of dead actors being replicated. Right. Like, uh, I think our conversation goes beyond like documentary to like this, this other thing nobody's questioning, which is like this AI made film with all these uh, visages of people that are dead and. Well, it's come up a lot recently, like what with like the, the there was the controversial James Dean film or whatever that was yeah, announced that was gross. and in yeah. other cases like, yeah. And the question is, how different is this from these or how how much yeah. is it like we're completing or putting the, the, the voice there for for other people? And it's a it's a the, the question becomes very muddy and, and uncertain. Um and, and how much you can uh, insert or or really the, the issue, I think, becomes the, the manipulation 
of right. a person uh, without their consent uh, in, in a in a dead or alive context. The same can be said again. It's like a the the deep fake technologies of today are very disconcerting, um, <laughs> and and uh, particularly when when it's used uh, under the guise of having the the, the real person as the representation there again it's it's the big thing there is the the knowledge of it up front if we're not made yeah. aware that this is not a uh, a representation of this person if we if we are not told up front that this is a a replication or or likeness then there's a question now does that mean that if you had like a like an information like a title card up front that said oh we used ai technology to replicate anthony bourdain's voice would that have made it acceptable no, but I, mean, I, I don't yeah. I don't know. It's it's again, it's be better, but maybe not quite right still. But then how is it, that different from hiring an actor? It doesn't draw in the question about like the if we could trust the truth of the film. I mean, if we could trust our source, uh, I think we'd better trust Morgan Neville and what he wanted to do if he weren't kind of like showboating about having an ethics panel and uh, if, yeah, that, if he that, just put the words there, it would that's, help. That's, I think, the the big thing that's drawing a lot more of the controversy here is how Morgan Neville is basically swinging around a sledgehammer about the issue here <laughs> and and making this uh, a more fiery topic, um, you know, and kind of bringing the conversation to to the center here. And uh, that, that that's another aspect that's probably very questionable about his, his approach to all of this and is just like complete in, in embrace and, and lack of uh re regard for for the question of it i guess he just kind of dove in head first about it and was like you know uh you know act first and ask questions later yeah um i i do agree even with the uh, uh helen rosner's uh finishing take that uh, be your own rabbi on the bourdain doc but she thought it was a thorny and fantastic film that centers a messy humanity of a man who in life and death was her heroicized almost to the point of erasure I think that's very important about what the documentary does, rebalancing him as a human and uh, presenting something else. I, I So I stand by the 10, but I also want to uh, come on and have some statement on the site uh, uh, about my remorse for <laughs> for how I feel about uh, that technology and deepfakes in general, which is uh, uh, unambiguously bad. I just love this movie that it happens to be in. Yeah, I, again, it's an, it's an important question. And again, like, like I said, ethical concerns don't, immediately disqualify a film if you look at art and and have like this checklist of things that you would uh disregard a film entirely for right away then you're not appreciating art you're no. you're just looking for some kind of moral superiority here to tout um again you know there there can be art made under bad circumstances or by bad people even uh or you know through uh un unseemly tools or however you want to regard this here you know uh and there's a place to talk about both at the same time. You know, one doesn't disqualify the other from the conversation. I'm glad we went over it for a bit. Uh, I think yeah. we have some uh, new films. You have a new film. I do. Time. I do. And it also actually is a documentary about a famous personality whose voice is provided by somebody that is not them. So yes. is, isn't that interesting how that ties in? I so, may need you to uh, fill in my voice. I'm losing it this episode, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll dub you over afterwards here and uh, uh just we'll put just... me through a machine actually. And yeah, we'll yeah, we'll AI get uh, AI, AI Calvin here. <laughs> what I always wanted. I'm going to put in my will. I think that's what I need. I need actors to put in their will. They either want this or they don't. Uh, yeah, you can use my likeness after the fact or yeah. or you can't. Let's make it cleaner. I think that has to happen now that we have the tech, uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But yeah, uh, the I watched uh, the new uh, documentary from A24 and Amazon, uh, Val, which is uh, all about Val Kilmer's life and career. Um, Val Kilmer, if again, for those who, who don't know, it's a pretty terrific actor, character actor, leading man from the, the 80s through the, the 2000s and up and through today. His career kind of hit the skids a little bit in the, the, the late 2000s, early 2010s, and then in 2015, he was diagnosed with throat cancer, and uh, luckily he he survived the cancer. But his throat was left, um, you know, in, entirely in, in uh, disrepair, and, and he's got a you know several tracheotomies he had, and his, now he can only speak, breathe, and eat through a tube in his throat, and uh, it, and he can only do one at a time. 
and it's it's taken a, a huge you know impair on his uh speaking abilities it's it, he has an incredibly raspy voice and can only speak in short breaths and is hard to understand and it's basically like like how how can you recover from that as an actor it's it's a death sentence practically but he is still making movies he's still working on things and he still has projects like this which uh is something he he states in the documentary that he's been wanting to do a long time kind of a contemplation on being an actor and what that means and his life in total it's definitely more of a profile of his him and kind of going over the big aspects in his life the big uh, stages than it is a, a meditation on being an actor though it is that it's at some points uh, and I think it's also just, an, you know, interesting profile of his life philosophy, you know, his his evolution through life and, you know, the, the various obstacles that he's overcome from, you know, the, the, the death of his uh, younger brother at an mm -hmm. early age uh, due, due to uh, an epileptic fit in a jacuzzi and, uh, you know, to uh, the, the divorces, you know, he, he's gone through at, at uh, very difficult times in his career to the, the low points you know, uh, in, in working in films such as, you know, the, the disaster of uh, Batman Forever and yeah. The Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, of course, up through the, uh, the the highs of life, the the great successes he's had and his personal triumphs and, and outlets and uh, philosophies and such. There was lots of parts of the documentary that, that personally touched me. Uh, my dad also had uh, throat cancer in 2015. Uh, and, and thankfully, he, he also it went into to remission and it's all but gone. And he didn't have any long lasting impairs like like Kilmer does here. And uh, I, I have my own history with epilepsy. So that was, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a, a sad thing to, to hear, particularly that that tragic aspect with his brother, who you, you see in a lot of home footage. The film is comprised uh, entirely of lots of home video that he shot throughout his life. He was, he was very, uh, you know, active with his camera you know, in all, all parts of his life. And so to see that footage of this very creatively spirited child and, and knowing that, you know, their their life was very suddenly snuffed out is, is always tragic to see. So that was one of the more emotional aspects of the documentary. But also just seeing the, the profile again, I, I value anything that is uh, posterity driven, like just mm. just the, the existence of all of this footage from this time period on on camera compiled in one place to give a, an essence of an era is fantastic and important just just at a base level there i think mm -hmm. it's fantastic to see and interesting um but then seeing how it pieces together uh pieces of uh, val comer's life and career trajectory and seeing uh all of that for from uh, the perspective of an actor who who had a very interesting and varied you know uh journey through hollywood uh i think has lots of value and interest too although the amount of time spent on on certain films you know it feels like we're, we're you know it, it's, it's kind of like a cliff notes running through certain things like his first film uh with the, the zucker brothers top secret which is a very funny spoof comedy if you haven't seen it uh is touched on very very briefly in the beginning before he goes right on to the next couple things spends a little more bit time on top gun and how big a sensation that was uh, i think the most most time is devoted to the doors of course where he plays jim yes. morrison i hope so yeah we're going to get to the doors aren't we oh oh yeah yeah i was almost going to propose it for next week but you hooked on something else instead so okay <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the door soon though because it's good film you know we uh, haven't oh, announced what we're doing next week <laughs> i know i know we'll get there that comes at the end of the podcast if you want the doors uh, the, do the doors <laughs> are the doors are open uh, as they say. <laughs> Well, uh, he also spends a lot of time on Tombstone, which uh, famously not a big fan of. No. But Val Kilmer's great in it, of course, and he stands out as a um, in, in there. And then there, there's a nice scene of him like at a at a showing of it in Texas, uh, and and that's like a nice moment. And there's an extended sequence as well that I thought was really touching uh, in like a sad way. It was like profound in a sad way of him at these like Comic Con conventions. And he's and he and he even has a small exchange about it. How he basically has to trade off of his old celebrity to kind of keep income coming and, and remain relevant because of his you know impaired uh, ability yeah. now. And that's that's really sad and tragic in his own way. But again, there's all there's also a sense of triumph that that he has going on 
in, in still being him and the personality that he projects as someone still full of enthusiasm in life, like the, the, the sound of, it, of his voice, it makes it seem like he's in a more dire situation than he really is because physically everywhere else, he's still very full of life, you know, and, and full of enthusiasm. It's just, he sounds like death. <laughs> I last saw him in uh, the disaster of the movie The Snowman, which was a, a mess for many other reasons that aren't Val Kilmer. Um, was he in that? He was. And uh, that's when I first heard his voice like that. And I just thought it was totally tragic. He's only in it for a moment because he could hardly talk. But um, I mean, if his character were in it, maybe uh, a little more of that could have tied the movie together. But uh, I mean, I have like the Joe Nesbos up here on the shelf. I, I like Joe Nesbo in The Snowman. I thought there was a movie to make there. Um, but I, I just thought it was so tragic to hear him like that in a movie and one that was fully released. And I, I didn't know. I didn't know if that was good if that that happened. He's he's supposed to be in a lot of things going on. I don't know exactly how that that works. He's like like he's yeah. in, he's slated for the new Top Gun, of course. But it's like, do they I'm guessing they, they they're going to dub him for that, which makes sense. They He's dubbed and, you know, he, his voice is provided in the documentary by his son okay. and they have him. They, they showcase him reading the lines and stuff and, you know, going over that. And there's a there's a kind of intimate connection there as well. That's really interesting. But his presence is also kind of interesting, I think, in the documentary, because there's like. And uh, in, in how uneven it kind of goes over his life. Like there's a lengthy part of it uh, that's dedicated to the birth of his first child, his daughter. But his son Jack's birth doesn't get any mention at all. Like it's and not. He's the one reading it, right? Yeah, and okay. <laughs> and and there's lots of footage of them like hanging out and having experiences together throughout it, but just like no mention of him in terms of like the the evolution of of Val Kilmer's life and where he pops up and all that. Little weird. And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, it seems like you're skipping over important <laughs> events here. And like I said, the, the amount of time he spends on some things like early on, he he talks about some of his biggest acting influences. And they're like, you know, uh, John Garfield and Marlon Brando, you know, and the, these big, uh, you know, uh, uh, method actors mm -hmm. who really dedicated the craft. And, you know. Val Kilmer had the opportunity to work with Brando. He starred with him inside uh, in the, the Island of Dr. Moreau. And that film is famously like a huge train wreck of a production. And so yeah. like, like, you know, problematic. And it's, it's not given as much time in the film as you would think it would. Like, I think more time is spent talking about his struggles in Batman than on the Island <laughs> of Dr. Moreau, which came that, like, like right behind each other. So that's definitely like career low point. You can feel that. When they already have that documentary about the Island of Dr. Moreau. Right. I think everyone should watch. <laughs> so yeah. I, I would just be, there. it would be interesting. Cause like there's, there's a whole sequence in it where he's arguing with director John Frankenheimer about keeping his camera on until they start rehearsing because of the way Frankenheimer is treating the actors and threatening to quit the production. And he wants that for kind of like security sake. And it's just pissing off Frankenheimer more. But like, I, I would have been fascinated to hear more about what what he thought working with this with Brando, but never do you get a sense of what he, he felt like being on set with Brando, just, you know, the sense of how, uh, how poor of a production this was and how he was, uh, how negative an experience it was overall. Hmm. So uh, pretty interesting doc, though, it covers a lot of his life, but uh, has some gaps in it. Yeah, I, I enjoy it and would recommend it. You know, I I definitely feel it's a it's a work of personal expression for for Val Kilmer, but uh, it's it's also not necessarily re revelatory in so many ways. But uh, very nice to see how he's still finding ways to look back and express himself. I believe he had a memoir he put out this last year as well, which I guess kind of goes in tandem with this. So maybe that's an interesting accompanying material. Okay. Um, I'll be checking it out. I mean, it'll be on Amazon uh, on the 6th, I believe, uh, of next month. So August 6th or so. Yeah, I think so. And in theater this week, I believe the 23rd. So um, uh, we have uh, some other new movies <laughs> from uh, North Bend. Uh, North Bend, I mostly did digital this year. Um, just a lot going on in uh, personal life that I, that I couldn't quite attend a lot of movies this week. Um, I, it's nice being back at a festival and even going to one showing, right? It's nice being around people and, uh, and knowing that these things are back last year, it was folded into uh night stream, which was combined with like Brooklyn horror and several other, um, 
of these uh, genre festivals. So it's nice that North Bend is its own thing again, because this is the one that I started doing as press. And it was the first one I even applied to on its first year of existence. So uh, my writing career here on the site is very parallel to the development of North Bend as a festival. Uh, so it's close to my heart that it even exists. Uh, there was a Donnie Darko retrospective, which I watched. Um, I didn't watch all of Donnie Darko, but uh, I did watch the the hour-long uh, Richard Kelly uh, interview about it, and um, that's nice. I can't believe it's 20 years old. That was kind of defining for, like, the goths of my generation, in a way. Uh, I, I haven't revisited the film in a long time, but either. of course I, I didn't want to. I, I remember greatly enjoying it as, as a teenager, and I imagine there's still lots of enjoyment to be had, but uh it's it's also the case where the, the the it's a kind of a one-hit wonder from the director there i don't yeah. think people like southland tales but do they i mean do they I mean, like we it know, we know we know at least one person who likes southland tales but does he like it or is he does he like I th- saying I think, it to I, us no i think he genuinely likes it that's that's his kind of <laughs> that's his kind of schlock yeah yeah that's pure schlock um it just got that big prestigious Arrow release too, so I don't know. Somebody, <laughs> so there's there's got to be a community of people yeah. who find value in Southland Tales out there. Otherwise, what the hell is all this in the world for anyway? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, I like Donnie Darko. I, I will revisit it sometime. I didn't have time with all my personal things going on. Um, there was a uh, The Witches of the Orient, which is a documentary about Japanese volleyball ball players from the 60s who won like 258 games in a row which is a record for women's volleyball and uh they won the first women's olympics volleyball event we have a new olympics starting this weekend so that's a good tie-in as well um i'm excited to watch the the tokyo olympics again which uh it was the first tokyo olympics where they won the volleyball event uh that's a really good tie-in and, and a pretty good movie i mean um it's nice to see like matron uh athletes like in you know in their old age, finally uh, interviewed. I, I feel like we kind of lose the track with women athletes after they're out of their prime and they're not presented the way that we uh, kind of glorify them in like sports media in a gross way. So that's uh, that's probably true of women in general. Yeah, uh, yeah. But definitely for for women in, in the realm of sports, where their physique is even more prized. You yeah. know, and especially once you have like. Uh, as the title implies, there's a racial component going on there. Uh, other countries were terrified of them, called them the witches. Um, I still don't agree with the title. I think it could have been called something else because the, the women in the film still don't like that name. And uh, they're like, eventually we realize, yeah, we're special and we have a secret attack. Maybe we are witches, but but they don't like it. Um, I, I think one of the things it does is it interviews them and then tries to find footage that matches it rather than having their voice on it. And I think because it would have been so special to have like these older women in it, uh, to keep cutting away for this more artistic, like uh, drone music behind Japanese industry of the 60s, um, maybe it would have been more impactful just to let the women talk. Uh, There's there also an anime it was ba- that was based around uh, their winning, which is like Attack Number One, which also spawned like 150 or 104 episode manga. So uh, it, it clips in like pieces of that to make like the volleyball more interesting because uh, volleyball it's kind of back and forth but if you have like the back and forth intercut with like an anime spike like someone spiking the ball down and then it gets back to real people I mean that's stylish and cool so I, I did like it and I have a review coming of that but it might be my only review I did watch a lot of shorts um, I, I did pack those in as I always do there and um, is, is there any uh, like like I know there's a lot of shorts so obviously can't go over them but can you give me like a high point and low, low point for shorts yeah <laughs> uh, if you really want, <laughs> do you really want the low point? I think you know what it is. And I, 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 I do. I do. That. I kind of really want to hear about it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's not so much to, to say, I guess it's for the audience, right? Because you already kind of know what's wrong there. Um, there was one called grab them, which I thought could have been just like a horror thing. Like, Oh, they're grabbing my family. No, it's a grab me, grab them by the pussy. It's a, it's a Trump <laughs> quote. It opens with Trump's face on newsreel. And then it slowly uh, transforms into a deep fake of a woman who has to live with Trump's face every day. Her husband's no longer interested. The, uh, t- the folks at the grocery store laugh at her as she walks by. Uh, she's dejected and she can't uh, figure out how to live. Um, in Sweden, I believe, with Trump's face. It's it's such a hard life for her. 
until well i should say at the at the beginning she grabs a vibrator and she's got trump's face on and she's kind of playing with that and i've never been more uncomfortable on the show um <laughs> at, by the end we realize it's all been a dream because she runs into this uh, putin deep fake on the bus and and the trump deep fake and the putin deep fake look into each other's eyes and fall in love then we cut back to uh uh trump with the vibrator and that's a, a thing that happened uh you'll find that in my uh something strange uh short collection <laughs> um apt <laughs> i don't know why you're putting me in this position because <laughs> it's not like my best choice it sounds a lot better uh my best choice is called the nipple whisperer <laughs> <laughs> and it's dennis levant who you'll know from like uh, holy motors and uh, uh the mountain which is a cult film that i really like that nobody else has watched yet from two years ago um and in the mountain, he does like the whole dancing thing that he does in uh, Beau Travail. And I, I'd like a whole celebration of Dennis Levant if we can. I think he'll be in Annette next month. Um, so maybe more Dennis Levant stuff. Uh, he whip, he whispers into women's nipples and it arouses them into like a sensual bubble zone. Uh, it's talking about like soap and women's bodies. And and then some women woman he used to know had breast surgery. She no longer has nipples and they're able to reconnect by him still breathing under the skin and uh it's a creepy weird thing but uh, i like dennis levant so, so that's it's, north bend <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great selection very very uh, eclectic <laughs> oh shit <laughs> there, there was a science sono movie but i didn't have a lot to say about that so uh, i'm gonna stick with prisoners of ghost land as my uh sono right up for the year uh, elsewhere in festival land we had can uh spike lee present can uh did you didn't, didn't something go wrong i, I need yeah. a refresher here go ahead and give me a <laughs> thrown down so um spike lee doesn't speak french <laughs> and uh, that's surprising lots of people don't no a lot of people don't speak french as, as you'll learn as you'll learn a little later here we definitely don't speak french we definitely don't uh, as you learn from my pronunciation of a name in five seconds uh, <laughs> so when spike got up there she was like uh the lady in french in french was saying uh yes yeah, spike uh, tell us what the first winner is like like the first like the lowest you know entry of the festival he's like okay the palm door goes to tatan <laughs> and he said it so quickly nobody could stop him and uh spikes i feel so bad for him he's uh, crumpled over in the corner, just holding his head. Uh, I I felt really big sympathy, both for him and uh, Julia Ducournay, who I'm probably pronouncing the name of wrong. Uh, she did Raw, which is uh, editor Stephen and mine, one of our favorite movies of the last 10 years. I know it's top five overall for him. Um, and she's making a movie that's basically like Crash, like Cronenberg's Crash, which is about like metal and bodies and eroticism which uh raw's kind of like that but about blood and and uh female um coming of age so uh really happy for decorne i'm not happy about how it went but i don't think spike or her are either it it, it happens you know yeah, blunders happen on the stage all the time you know uh are, are we gonna ever let faye dunaway live down announcing la la land <laughs> instead of moonlight unlikely but you know again it's it's one of those things and particularly if there's a language barrier there uh, you know, it's it's bound to, you know, come up in, in some cases. Like, it's hard to blame someone for, for an easy mistake to make, but it yeah. sucks nonetheless. And, of course, it just makes, like, like it just highlights a kind of a ignorance across cultures, you know, that, that we all suffer from in, in one way or another. And It's, it's more and, on her for saying it in French first. I think they should have had someone communicate to him in English. You, you um, could argue, you could argue, though, that likewise, it's, you know, Spike's fault for not, you know, yeah. taking the effort to learn French in a, you know, in the country that, you know, it's, it's their language. And spoken, or not, but or not to be familiar with how they announce the awards if he's go ahead the whole process. Yeah, I mean, there's there's other things he could have done there. there yeah. Um, and, and you could sit here and you could, you know, you could play our armchair coach all day and yeah. go back and say what you could have done to prevent such a thing. But you know, no matter the amount of preparation you do generally, slip-ups happen. It's just going to happen. And it's funny, you know, yeah. in some ways, but it's also, you know, uh, frustrating and tragic in, in other senses. Uh, but I nobody's going to nobody's gonna care that much. I think in, we're in also time. charmed anyway, right? Like, since for the first time since, what, like 1938, a, a woman, the second time, a woman's won the Palme d'Or. So Really? I think, yeah, I think 
for the second time in its whole history, a woman director's won the Palme d'Or. And see, see, the Oscars aren't that bad. No. They're not that behind. <laughs> they obviously, have about the same numbers as can. I mean, <laughs> the, I think it's the, equally representative. Obviously, the whole no, world no. is misogynist. <laughs> yeah, is what we're saying. <laughs> and like the Oscars, they announced it early. Uh, so <laughs> we're redoing how awards work uh, globally, and um, I hope. Today we're going to reward uh, Eric Romare's uh, Claire's Knee with the uh, the best film we've yet covered on the show. We'll see. We'll see. What what does David think of Calvin's fancy French movie? The Geek Door. The, <laughs> palm Palm's Knee. The, palm, palm's Knee. <laughs> Claire's Door. <laughs> I'm very nervous about this. I I don't exactly know what you think i saw that your fiance loves the movie so i assume you like the movie I, i've never I seen you guys that far apart so. I, so, sometimes it can be uh for instance uh the what's this it's another uh the the, the meetings of anna it's a film okay. we watched together and uh i definitely didn't like <laughs> um i i don't think uh chantal ackerman is a is a filmmaker that jives with my sensibilities as much Yikes. and she was also not like over enthusiastic about it but she liked it at least mm -hmm. and i uh didn't <laughs> And so probably lost a big sect of our audience right there. Yeah. Because uh, Ack Ackerman is a, is a beloved filmmaker, I believe, in lots of circles at the moment. And so I've just yeah, outed I just myself. Yeah, I that out. <laughs> sure, sure you no. can. Uh, I, just just bleep it. Just just bleep the, the parts where I reveal <laughs> what it could have been. Oh, I was really worried just leading up to this because I've been asking you for about a year to do Claire's Knee. And I thought I, I, I asked you funny. six months ago and you're like, uh, knowing me, I... It's probably a little bit outside my wheelhouse, and I knew it would be a challenge at the very least. So, uh, I think a very worthy challenge. It's something that I I imagine is pretty unimpeachable as a movie. Sure, I just I'm, I need to address up front here for the viewers. I know that I'm a, a big proponent of of old Hollywood, and and I I like to function within my wheelhouse here, but that doesn't mean that I don't like movies from around the world, <laughs> from other countries. Yeah, France, Japan, the Netherlands. It's just this Bob type Wayne. of movie, right? Like you like Cocteau, you like a you like French things too. It's sure. just Cock to be Cocteau. A... Cocteau's a genius. He's yeah. wonderful. I love I love Tati. He's a great comic, one of the best. But they kind of make things within your wheelhouse, which is like yeah, image yeah. First. Those those definitely appeal to my sensibilities like more immediately. If we're talking about the more kind of like esoteric, contemplative, you know, more <laughs> you know, like like these these more sensation based uh, French films. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's maybe that's gonna rub me a little the wrong way. I don't know. Oh. I'm 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 an American by by nature, uh, and that's not to say that I can't function in the world outside of my my motherland. But yeah, it's it's definitely like I'm like I'm dipping my toes into the deep end of the pool. This is pretty much the deep end, by the way. Um, Romare, I think, is well considered for a lot of the right reasons. A different kind of director than most of the French New Waivers. Right. I mean, he's he's one of the 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 Kaye clique, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but he's not talked about as much as like Truffaut or Godard are, you know. Uh, he, he definitely <laughs> yeah. well, from from my understanding, like in circles, at least, right? Like, yeah, yeah. In my in, circles he is. Sure, sure. But like in, in the in the broader film circle, the ones that at least approach uh the the french new wave a bit more it's, like those those two names are really front and center and, and a lot yeah. of the others are kind of like in the background they're like oh we're here too i you mean claire's knee possibly didn't have like the 400 flows effect where it becomes international canon i think it's very much french canon and and i think it's almost french literary canon in a way uh which is kind of what i'm gonna get onto with romare is that i approach him like i would a novelist and that his films to me play like visual novels in a way um, and not in the dumb video gamey way, but in like a, <laughs> in a really profound, like a can, can esoteric a, way. Can we get a, a, a visual, visual novel? novel? Claire's Claire's <laughs> yeah, I'd play it. Unfortunately. <laughs> it, but, but I'm sure you have a, you have a burning question still Calvin and you want to know if I like this film or not. It, I like it so much that I'm not going to be damaged by any response, but because you're playing around it, I assume that you do like it. This is probably the best film I've watched this year so far. You get a can <laughs> standing ovation. <laughs> I'm doing a circle around the room. Hold on. <laughs> oh, shit. He's, he's, he's jumping off the wall right now. 
Um, I it's the best film I've seen all year. I mean, it's the best film I've seen in thirty three years. Uh, in, in terms of like new new films, I mean very specifically. But I've watched a lot of really great films this yeah, year. This month in particular, I've watched some really uh like like emboldening new classics. Uh, Spawn Maker's uh, uh Alice. Alice yeah. yeah, that was that was really fantastic. Uh, first watch of this month. Uh, I watched uh, George Cukor's Born Yesterday, which is really fantastic as well. Um, but but this definitely was uh, a, a fantastic and interesting contemplation on on a, a nuanced aspect of society and, and human relationships that I think is is not only a little like dubious to to discuss and and difficult to to approach, but is done in in such an, an embracing and kind of like non you know judgmental or or, or binary sense right. That I I think few films that I've encountered otherwise have have managed to even come close to, let alone uh, really explore in, in a in a vast sense. It's well, it's what is it number five or six of his I moral think it's tales? Five, I believe okay. it's five. Five of six. Five of six. Yeah, there's one more after this, which is kind of a contemplation of everything that came before. But uh, for this and all of them before i would say you could watch any of them at any point um I, obviously those things don't have to carry over but uh all of them are kind of about men's perversity toward women and how we deal with that uh in a way that's not framed by male directors in any other case i've found where the women aren't defined by the men's perversity especially and that they define themselves and they uh they sometimes rebuke the men in interesting ways and show that um people who stay in relationships uh, Romare seems to think a lot more of than uh, the the frivolous men who throw away their values and uh, chase any woman on the street. Um, he kind of demonizes those characters eventually. Uh, I look at like My Night at Mods where it's living through like Pascali and logic and our relationship to God. But if your God's gone, then what are you worth anymore? Um, it's like placing all your principles on Catholic ideology and then what happens when that falls out? And I think all his films are Catholic in a sense. They're all reflections of Catholic guilt and remorse and how we feel about women, especially And that uh, no matter what we do, character wins out and our true nature will always take over. So philosophically, I think that's where Romare is coming from. Uh, I think he is a philosopher and a, a writer first, but, um, but he works with great cinematographers. The guy who shot this did a days of heaven. Uh, I'm forgetting his name, Nestor maybe, uh, but, but he also shot days of heaven, which I just watched last week. Uh, just incredible cinematographer. Uh, and you could really feel that. I think you were saying like, as you come in on the uh, Riviera, you're like coming down the canal, you, you see the bridge and you're instantly in Claire's knee. Like you're on a summer vacation. It's a, it's a, beautiful locale throughout it there's a great great shot when when he and uh, uh where jerome and uh laura are are up in the mountains and mm -hmm. and you can see you know you peek over the hillside there and you see like the whole city below and just this gorgeous tableau and the location is you know this this picturesque uh you know summer getaway the the whole way through and and just this very warm you know sense of place and uh I, i've said before i i love the water i love being on the water so just even being like in the in the perspective of in that in that small boat as it's kind of uh journeying across the lake and such throughout i just i i feel so very very comfortable in that space in, in, in that perspective and so yeah when, when when you describe this as a very you know uh nice summer film to kind of settle into it definitely has that vibe you know throughout from the from the very first frame i felt transported to a sense of place time and place absolutely i feel it every time i i, I first saw this when i was 14 and i was it was when I decided to make, become serious about movies. I think everything before that was just prologue, but mm -hmm. I, I grew up like around lakes and around the water. And I, I'm so transfixed by especially Romare's interpretations of beaches and uh, men and women having uh, psychological and um, philosophical conversations about how they are gendered and uh, relate to each other sexually, like around those bodies of water, I think is always profound and looks nice. I mean that's my favorite template for a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, the the film I thought was such a a careful and expert balancing act of a a a 
uh, uncomfortable subject matter in some ways, uh, particularly nowadays, this this line of, of attraction and, and sexuality and how we ascribe yeah. to r relationships as a whole uh, across, you know, not, not just uh, gender and sex, but also uh, age, in which the film is particularly uh, fixated on, is is a, a very, like, you know, touchy subject, touchy ground. Uh, we, we obviously, as a society, have these strict barriers and ideas and groups that, that we kind of associate and, and allow people to exist within, you know, relationships for. But at the same time, there there are arbitrary barriers that are established to yeah. to protect us and and other groups, you know, of you know, course. more vulnerable groups from from the exploitations of others. And they're they're important societal structures, but they're also, you know, uh, br brusting against the 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 wider spectrum we have of things. One of the things that the film really captures that that I thought was fantastic and and really opened, uh, you know, for for a good conversation is the spectrum of relationships that you can have with with people uh and and how the the, the varying levels of of intimacy or interaction that can have because n you know none of it's binary it's not strictly a, a a sexual compatibility or not or a physical attraction or not or an intimate one or not it's it's this blurry line and mix of all sorts of things that exist and that the film doesn't endorse one or the other all the way necessarily and is condemning of certain aspects of that and not mm -hmm. but at the same time also not outwardly judgmental and you know um you know uh like, like fiery towards because it it understands that a lot of these sensations and feelings are are human just just by by nature and and we have to work to understand what is is proper and what is honest and, and true and how far one can pursue it and it and yeah. one of the the very important things that it insists on is that it's not strictly a a male aspect either even though it is framed through well, an older man's relationship the towards whole, younger women the whole premise is that aurora experienced these things when she was younger it's not even jerome's idea especially yep. i mean he is married and his and his wife's away which which happens occasionally on the moral films <laughs> um, well uh, i think one of the interesting things about it and particularly in the beginning is that and, and how it constantly frames particularly in these conversations between aurora and jerome is that she she is the one urging him or inciting him to do these things but yeah. at the same time he already kind of wants to do this oh yeah like, she's that's, just playing into what he thinks i mean yeah that's already there and, and he plays it off or he, like he's constantly trying to to push away responsibility or guilt or like particularly after the first time like he goes into to kiss laura and then he has like the confession afterwards which was which definitely put me off at first i was like all right, so, where where's it going? But it, but it kind of bounces back because right. he's he's like, oh, I, I was I was just like testing her or, or pushing her or showing her that she wasn't wanted, and I'm like, the film knows that this is bullshit, that he's he doesn't actually mean this. But what I love as well is that he also does mean it. He also yeah, like, like the action was both at the same time, and that's the nuance of the film that I really hooked onto and loved is that he can he can have multiple motivating factors at once he he went in to kiss her both because he he knew and was testing her they reject mm -hmm. her but also there's a part of him that actually did want to and has his own selfish you know and, and lustful motivations towards her it's not one or the other it's again it's it's nuanced and it, it has a spectrum of, of feelings and you can see that transform and come even more once you do get clear into the picture which does take some time in the film yeah it does and especially once everything he does with claire too i mean it's he eventually gets his victory he wants to touch her knee that's the challenge to touch her knee and eventually he does it in a way that he feels isn't lustful but it, it still is for him i mean it's ill-advised his victory still i mean it's morally complex and the the, the film is yeah again it's it's and the film knows that that's the thing is that and but it's not like a damning portrait of him at the same time it's it's a it's a nuanced it's a it's an understanding portrait of a of a real human it feels like and these yeah. ideas and and this complicated web of attractions and you know uh you know s uh you know structures that that are set up there and and the film like really understands and approaches and examines them it uh and and that's what uh, i felt 
at all times in the film is that you know it's it's so much of these things and it's it's so much of this denial of of sensation and desire but also this embrace of it and this knowing awareness and winking at it throughout and it and it, it carries all of these at the same time and and expresses them in in very subtle ways you know uh, I I love that you know you you can read and see that his relationship regarding Laura is playful and kind of just egging her on and, and really not that sincere you know the whole time like he he really uh, is just entertaining it for like kind of kind of like and, yeah, and you yeah. can see how he's denying that himself like any real you know feelings that you have which he definitely does uh but how at the same time he's you know managing to remain mostly on the surface but then once claire shows up that pretense is almost entirely dropped and he's just fully like like lusting it's after true. her like a teenage boy there's so much to go into um yeah something you said stuck out to me that it, i mean the characters are so well exhibited uh that i think the theories that romer wrote a book first and uh couldn't couldn't quite work that out so he made uh six moral tales instead um it's it's interesting to me because the characters are so deeply defined around who plays them i can't imagine anyone else possibly playing jerome uh than john claude uh briley i can't I can't imagine any other actor embodying like one of my favorite characters because he is so real and it feels so based around who he is as an actor and Claire too. I mean, uh, but but moreover, I think I think Laura might be like the the secret of the film. I mean, like that that bustly hair and just like the performance. Uh, she was eighteen at the time of shooting. I think Claire was like fifteen. So so there's a there's some interesting like age dynamics there. Are you, are you saying that, that Sarah was older in the film than Claire was? Uh, I think the characters are meant to be about the, the same age, but the actors were Claire, different. Claire age. seems to project like an, a sense of, of uh, an older sense of it's character versus She's Laura. Like three years younger, right? But... Yeah, that's 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 very interesting to learn. Again, like the the difference there is rather you know minuscule because because ultimately they're they're teenagers that this you know 40 year old man is you know chasing around right. uh but but even like it's it's interesting when 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 laura talks about like there's this one moment where she talks about you know the one time she may have been in love with with someone her age and it was only like three years ago yeah and it is kind of like oh oh the you know <laughs> the, the the silly you know ideals of youth and and such and this this different regard because in the beginning there's those different approaches to relationships and what love means and this idea that she's like oh love makes me mean it makes me possessive and mm. and jerome is likewise like no you know it's you know for me it's you know i'm, I'm with this woman friends, right yeah yeah it's all about this friendship and finding someone that you could be with and, and are content with and it's like yeah those those betray a kind of different sense of how you approach romance you know as you kind of get get older you know perhaps but also at the same time uh you later kind of see this this uh you know how it exhibits how jerome is is chosen to to settle for a more comfortable perhaps non you know romantic uh ideal of a relationship and and he's just you know resigned himself to you know, no longer, you know, chasing that, that, that high or that, that lust or that, you know, uh, you know, rosy uh, sense of, of love that he once had or, or, you know, chooses to, you know, now because the, the comfort and the ease of a stable relationship is, is more alluring, uh, uh, I suppose, or more comforting anyway. Obviously, he still pines after, you know, some sense, sense of the, the romantic and the fleeting he, but he still wants the chase, but not the not the end result. Yeah, he he wants both. Like like again, this idea that this this spectrum of relationship that exists, and again that idea, like he says, of you know building a, a relationship off of friendship first and, and blossoming a romance from there. You know, it's it's a different kind of romance than than you know the more uh, you know the, the fleeting kind that they embrace and the seductive approach. So it sounds like you do like it quite a lot, and I think that uh just the balance and the nuance of the characters seems to have worked pretty well it it definitely did and again the film's embrace of this um you know kind of like like difficult to parse subject matter and the, the ways in which it, it investigates and prods it in a way again that that doesn't land on a a strict definition of what should or shouldn't be the case while still being entirely aware aware of how uh, uh the 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 dubious, you know, uh, 
actions of of certain characters and how you know and, and pressing as to where they they go too far there you know or when this is no longer an acceptable approach to a relationship between you know an, an, an older person and a younger person you know and again like i said the the fact that it does also highlight how it's not beholden to to a particular gender through mm. aurora's character <laughs> having done the same thing you know uh, i think is a, a a key aspect of the film to to show that it is more than just about uh predatory men per se you know it doesn't it doesn't come across like that despite his yeah. sometimes sleazy approaches to to things here uh, i don't think it's it's wholly condemning of him again it gives uh jerome the benefit of you know the 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 human uh you know uh fallacy of of you know his his approach here and how he's you know kind of taken in by this and it understands that these are you know uh kind of like undeniable aspects that that people you know uh exhibit in, in a general sense he's not like an exceptionally corrupt person or anything mm -hmm. like that this is a very very you know normal kind of experience for people that uh you know, needs addressing, but is also not, you know, inherently evil, per se. Yeah, I don't think there's inherent evil or that Romero would think about it that way. Uh, I think his characters, too. We 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 tend to nowadays, I think, address the, those like large age gaps, uh, you know, in, in a yeah. very outright condemning and, and unacceptable manner, which is not. I think you're very worried about way. that. And I, I barely <laughs> think that's in the text. Like, I don't think we need to define that. Right. Like. It's not like Lolita, right? It's no, I, I, I was thinking that. Like, I, I, I went in a little bit. Like when, when I read the description at first, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, this is a movie about a man who's uh, flirting with and, and hitting on two teenage girls. That's... I don't think we have to like protect this film. I, mean, I think it's well regarded and, no, and not no. questioned in that sense. I, I'm talking about it in the sense, and you're right, I, I do feel like the need to be like overly defensive of this. When I wrote my review on Letterboxd <laughs> for it last night, I was like, I don't want to sound like I'm coming across like I'm defending you know perverts or pedophiles here or anything yeah. like that and and because that's not what the, the film is but it's uh, i think nowadays it is something that again it's like it's a question that and it and it's a it's a issue that is that is hard to talk about in a in a nuanced way and i think the film does it so flawlessly that it's, that it's particularly impressive to me from the vantage point of 2021 <laughs> i'm starting to think you like it more the more you talk <laughs> so, <laughs> i, I, I love i like it a lot maybe my 15th viewing total i mean i've watched this most years i watch it every summer like i have this july birthday this week and i try to pair it around then so i i'm very grateful we got it on here yeah. uh, i wonder what i could talk you into next though i wonder what this will do for your uh, collection news is like an inverse of this with women as like a collector of men um my night at mods is probably the only direction to really go or, or maybe like the green ray out of the uh moral tales maybe another mm -hmm. romare but i think this I, might be the one for the moral tales that's for th us this one was a really fantastic first exposure to to romare I, I felt like i really got a sense of his uh filmmaking approach and again like like i i fixated so much on the subject that i didn't talk about how <laughs> well the the film is shot and, and directed especially like the the, yeah. the dialogue sequences between characters and exchanges uh the highlighting of the knee uh, that that first time especially really stands out as a as a poignant and fixed moment of, yeah. of emphasis in it, and, and uh, Claire's dress too. The way she's costumed is really brilliant. I mean, the way Jerome's costumed is really brilliant too. I I, I do want to say, except for the like the end, the last conversation where he looks like a pirate. I That's... like it. I like pirate <laughs> Jerome. <laughs> he's he he's got this great outfit. Otherwise, these very chic sweaters, you know, yeah. thrown over his shoulders and stuff. And then he 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 looks like. Jerry Seinfeld in that one episode with the puffy shirt. I like that <laughs> Jerome's a diplomat and that he dressed like a, a French diplomat and, and he acts like one in his romances. <laughs> is uh, is there is there anything else about the film especially? I feel like I took over a lot in, in fixating on my, my explanation of things that I observed, but like I would I would love to know more about what makes this so special and what really stands out for you in this film in particular. I do think it has to do with the summer vibe and uh Romare being able to effortlessly kind of navigate the perversity of men against women and um, without that defining any of his women characters they're all defined by themselves and they can mm -hmm. rebuke the men they have an option that women don't in film um, oh, that, oh and, that's one of the the great touches particularly with Claire's character is that she just 
flat out doesn't give a fuck about Jerome. Yeah. yeah she... Versus Laura, who is who's very clearly pining for him. And that's where he's kind of like getting his, his jollies from the sense and, and, and toying with and, and playing with this affection that he's receiving. And then when it's something he can't get, he, he becomes more uh, obsessed with it and, and kind of plotting to to uh, get his his achievement there by by touching her knee. Well, that's what I mean about like characters in committed relationships. Romero is going to side with them and let them have their victory. And uh, the person who chases after it isn't going to get it. Like a Claire's boyfriend isn't going to get any victory. But for Claire, she was able to own herself and her her humanity, but also her feminism without um without giving it up to this creepy guy who's just been hitting on her the whole time. Um, she's still able to own herself and and have her own value in Romero's uh, lens. Uh, he treats women respectfully too, uh, I believe. I thought about that scene where, where he's talking to her about her, her boyfriend in, in the yeah. rain where they're taking cover. And I'm like, how would this scene feel if we didn't know like what he's saying is, is the truth? Like yeah. if you took out, if you took out she that, doesn't, bit, right? Right? So. yeah. So if you had that perspective of her, cause the film rarely leaves Jerome's perspective throughout we're, we're given like his full insight to, to almost everything going on. But if you, if you take and put yourself in his, in, in her shoes there like how how can you take that as as truth you know uh, and this this isn't some ploy that he's you know getting in, in, in that uncertainty of it and she's got that she she breaks down really well like her acting in that scene is really truly terrific uh, like instinctively i think she knows there's something wrong with uh guile and especially with her volleyball friend when he says it it doesn't shock her that it was her right like mm-hmm. uh, he, she had some like intrinsic idea but he just had to explain it to her um i i think that it is written novelistically and that it plays like the most literary kind of film possible matters to me and that's a new creation it's not some like film like taken out of a book or shakespeare or, like some uh some old text this is like all novel creation from romare and it's all uh distinctly written for the screen like it despite being novelistic it has to happen with these uh imagistic elements of like this french or uh, uh like it mostly happens in the backyard of the place uh, uh, by the by the seaside. So in some way, it is a chamber play too. Uh, for me, I think that aspect works really well as a chamber play. Claire's knee is really exceptional. Mm-hmm. I, I I have to agree. Like I said, it's definitely one of the most uh, uh, fascinating and compelling works I've I've seen this year. Uh, and and oftentimes, particularly for the podcast, you keep bringing yeah. me things that are that are very successful, more so than I'm expecting. Because again, I was I was unsure of how I might come out <laughs> because my my track record is like just not not consistent so far. Is all no. not that I don't love lots of the films I see from around the world, but uh, particularly French films. But yeah, uh, this this one is is definitely a more more ringing endorsement for for pursuing that more. And I'm very happy you brought it to me. Uh, in, in celebration here for for your birthday absolutely um i mean it's definitely driving me to think uh, more outside the box for what i can bring on um every once in a while i think we could dip more into uh, international cinema and see yeah see something yeah, different just, from our usual discussions yeah we, we could definitely use a little more variety i know <laughs> yeah i think we're doing good though i'm so glad we got to this and uh now i now i turn 33 this week as as old as jesus uh, when he was reborn we'll see huh. yeah. we'll see if i turn didn't, 33. didn't know that your your jesus fact of the day there you go <laughs> uh, i i i'm no, gonna bring you your... for more jesus facts yeah i got some stuff still to bring to oh, you, you do? yeah uh I, i'd show it to you here but uh, i'd rather just hand it to you okay. uh you'll be you'll be here soon enough or i'll pass by soon enough uh i got lots of stuff to, to give you for your birthday we usually exchange some stuff because we're good friends right Thank that's you, what buddy. friends do but yeah, it's on hold for right now. So you get an August birthday this year, I guess. That's great. And I'll be coming down there for an in-person show. Um, yes, yes. Secrets, though, as to, to what it is. Yeah, yeah. We'll, um, we'll save that for, for the day. It's it, it definitely comes. not something we said two podcasts ago at the end of the show. <laughs> definitely not. No. But yeah, because next week we have uh, a, a different film to talk about. Another uh, literary work. Elbow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I'd, I'd watch that I'd watch Bruce that the, the elbow that's a that's an interesting thing I, it's it's a it's another kind yeah. of like different non non-sexual part of the body but but what well, you say comforting yeah yeah Every, everyone loves a good weenus yeah claire's weenus coming next week on the twin Peaks. <laughs> 
now I look forward to to a return to, of course, the the my domain here, the classic Hollywood work. But, uh, but also one, mine. I mean, I yeah. I love this next movie. I, yes, I'm enthusiastic. Uh, Howard Hawks's To Have and Have Not. The the I think it's the first Hemming or Hemingway ever or or the first that he kind of signed off on. I know it was yeah, like there was there was a bet between him and Hawks that he couldn't adapt like what he thought Hemingway thought was his worst work. And then <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll get into all the differences, but apparently and, it's it's and, not. <laughs> and I might come out in defense of it not as Hemingway's worst work. Uh, oh, okay, interesting. Well, we'll I, see. We'll see how much the movie lines up with the book as well. I know, have, right? <laughs> I mean, you could have not, but I'm having it. Um, okay, well, we'll see who haves and who haves nots next week on the <laughs> Twin Geek Cast. Thanks for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Brogan, as well as our uh, new Ranking the Monsters with Stephen and Calvin. Uh, they're both available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating for all three if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. It's gonna haunt you. You're gonna want this feeling inside one more time. One more thing. You pick these things apart, they're not that appealing You put them together and you'll get this certain feeling That summer feeling is gonna haunt you one day in your life